Hey, Duncan. James. How are you going, mate? Busy as usual, but busy good, hopefully, this week. Busy is good. As they say in my profession, busy is the new black. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Welcome to this week's episode of Cloud Streaks, a podcast where Duncan and I, who have been friends for over 30 years now, uh, like to discuss a, a topic, article, or contemporary issue that we find to be quite interesting, but hopefully also practical and helpful um, in today's world. So to start off today's episode, I thought I would play a little game with you, Duncan. All right. Uh, So if anyone has heard in the past, I have uh, sometimes challenges with pronouncing words correctly, (laughs) Um, possibly because I haven't been pulled up on them or because I've never heard it before. So Duncan, I'm going to say a word and I'm going to see if you can guess what that word actually is. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here it is. Box pause. Faux pas. <laughs> Yay. That's a French word, right? So yeah. you said fox pause in public. <laughs> and, and it was like, it was, you know, meant like my fox pause and they're like, your fox yeah, pause so what, what? Is, what does faux pas mean? Because some people may not know what faux pas means. It's like a mistake. So, you know, um, you did something where uh, it was not the intended consequence, I would say. Yeah, it's, yeah, you look silly. You did something that made you look silly. It was a faux pas. It can be a fashion faux pas as an example, where you do something which is like, I don't know, not fashionable. James, Mm -hmm. you're in the fashion industry. How would you describe a fashion faux pas? (laughs) A fashion faux pas, the traditional one is wearing a belt with suspenders. Mm. Okay, yeah. So if you're wearing a suit, that is, yeah, you should be wearing one of the two. Yeah. Okay. I guess saying fox pause is a faux pas on pronouncing It's a faux pas of a faux pas, dude. It it is. It's a faux pas squared. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and I'm also not French, um, and so I'm sure my pronunciation of faux pas is probably a bastardization of the actual French one as well. Um, Okay, so the article today is from Michael Simmons, um, and it's called The Founders of the World... um, Five largest companies all follow the five-hour rule and they're polymaths. So I thought I'd do um, a bit of a quick uh, quotes from there. Each of them are voracious learners and each of them is a polymath. First to the definitions. A voracious learner is someone who follows the five-hour rule, dedicating at least five hours per week to deliberate learning. I define, and this is I as in the writer, define polymath as someone who becomes competent in at least three diverse domains and integrates them into a skill set that puts them at the top 1% of their field. When you become a voracious learner, you compound the value of everything you have learned in the past. When you become a polymath, you develop the ability to combine skills and you develop a unique skill set which has developed a competitive advantage, which helps you develop a competitive advantage. (laughs) Perhaps that for me could be reading. And so I thought I'd just start, James, when you first heard the word polymath, what did yeah. you think it meant? Yeah, so I mean, like the first when it was first uttered, I immediately thought, like, what new math concept are we learning today? Uh, <laughs> um, because you have polynomial and you have math- mathematics in there. But um, when I actually looked the word up, it, it just came across to me as another word for generalist or jack of all trades. So I didn't actually give it much pause for thought because I just thought this is a new um, way of looking at someone who just, you know, has a lot of anecdotal 
or sorry, um, trivial information available to them? Yeah, so I mean, I first thought it meant lots of maths, um, but it means that you <laughs> are an expert in multiple fields. Yeah. So yeah. you become sort of, you know, at sort of a sufficient level of knowledge. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. To take so, it, to fast forward to today, though, I really appreciate what the writer said, where um, the distinction here being where they are able to synthesize between different bodies of thought or areas of knowledge. That, that to me, I find really distinctive and really helpful in understanding what polymath can mean. Yeah. Just while we're on this, um, I thought we might do one more word and origin of this. So I recently found out the origin of democracy and where that comes from. Uh, so it comes from the Greek word demos kratos. And James has sort of seen this, but did you know what that means? Or can anyone, do you know what that means before today? Uh, what, demos kratos or democracy? Yeah. <laughs> well, or democracy, no. yeah. So demos kratos, that, that means people power. And that's democracy because, you know, it used to be that all states, you know, for the Greeks that came up with this, were, you know, run as sort of totalitarian or authoritarian or sort of, you know, regimes. Um, mm. So I thought that was very interesting. It's people power. Yeah. Um, so when I when I uh, uh, saw this, you know, Greek word, I thought I would come up, try and find my own. Yeah. Um, but Duncan, do you actually know where the word heresy comes from? Mm, no. So uh, heresy so, being yeah, no. going against the church. Yeah. Uh, um, comes from the Greek word meaning choice. Oh, interesting. So it's um, it could actually be um, a denotion of. Um, freedom, but the one who a person who makes their own choice was considered heretic. Uh, <laughs> and and I've got one more, and I know, um, given Duncan's opinion on the Australian housing market, he'll probably agree with this one. Have you um, have you seen where the word mortgage came from? No. So mortgage uh, originate from a French expression meaning death pledge. Death pledge. So if you, if you get a mortgage, you're doing a death pledge. Basically. <laughs> oh, God. Um, all right. Um, so getting back to the article after our little sort of interlude there, um, maybe the first one is, you know, being a polymath, i.e. proficient in both, uh, multiple fields, um, do we think that's better or worse than a single field? And I thought I'd talk about just a little bit of history to begin with. Um Repetitive jobs, both mental and physical, are going away. So 200 years ago, before the Industrial Revolution, 90% of humans were farmers, and now less than 2% of humans are farmers. And this has happened because of automation, um, you know, tractors and so forth. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty happy that I don't have to till the soil with my hands and I can go to a supermarket and get food whenever I want. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people talk about automation as this sort of bad thing. And I'm not saying that it's all 100% good. Some people definitely do lose their jobs. But net-net, I think people live a better life, especially, you know, in a country like the West, you know, than they did 200 years ago. Um, And so automation, you know, here I think has been quite good. Yeah, so to that point, what um, I think people are saying when they think that this is bad, that they are concerned or um, the concern would be that it's going to take away a lot of people's jobs. Um, And... That's a very, very, um, you know, I guess, first order effect that people un- try understand when you think of something like a truck driver or a production line that can be automated. Those people who previously were doing those um, tasks are no longer required for those tasks. So that's where the fear is coming from, um, I, in my understanding. Is that the same for you, Duncan? Yeah, I mean, people losing their jobs is not necessarily great. 
Um, and fear spreads a lot faster than positive things. Um, but if you look through the actual stats, 50 years ago, about 2.5% of each jobs, all jobs each year were being destroyed. Mm. And now it's slowed down to 1.5%. So yeah. since the Industrial Revolution, jobs have been being destroyed, but it's actually slowing. So automation is not this new thing that's just happening now. It's mm. been happening. And so if you said to people 100 years ago, when you know the majority of people were farmers or factory workers, what are you going to do when there's only about 13% of you are going to be farmers and factory workers? You're going to be a cafe barista. You're going to be a yoga teacher. You're going to work at an online fashion company. You're going to do digital, you know, making websites. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? But that's actually happened. <laughs> um, so this is what has happened and will continue to happen. Yeah. And net, net, you know, living standards have improved. And I think people have been able to concentrate more on, you know, the, what it means to live a good life and engaging with humans and, you know, in a good way, not just, you know, subsisting. And so I think that this has net, net been a good thing. You know, whether it will continue to be a good thing in the future is something that people debate. But yeah. I think that people don't necessarily see how this has helped them and they look just at the people losing their jobs. And again, that's not great, but it's not entirely bad. Yeah. So um, I am very, uh, I guess, interested in trying to find people out there who have these ideas about how automation doesn't mean the end of job, but it means the transition to different kinds of, um, I guess, areas of opportunity that um, we can be focusing on. And this week, I came across a very interesting way of, um, I guess, explaining this opportunity. Uh, and it came from the, the annual shareholder letter from Jeff Bezos in uh, his annual uh, letter to Amazon shareholders. And he basically described his focus on the customer um, as being the greatest asset because customers, uh, and this is his quote, divinely discontent uh, which is a a beautiful way to phrase it but it's a reminder that the user experience no matter how good you get today will never be satisfied tomorrow what is extraordinary today is ordinary tomorrow Um, so it's basically saying that the human desire to want to have the best possible experience is insatiable so there will always be something for us to be focusing on to try and improve the human experience. And so I think this is what automation can't touch on, but when, you know, one problem is fixed tomorrow, like last mile delivery or, um, you know, AI, then we can focus on how we can improve the human experience. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I think that's kind of what we've been able to do. So we were sort of started here talking about how, you know, jobs have changed. And so, where we started with is it doesn't make sense to be a polymath. So it used to be that you could have a skill and you could do that skill, like repetitive skill, and make a a wage and income. But those things are sort of going away. And if all the things that are, you know, repetitive are being automated and going away, then what's left after this? Um, And there's many things, but most things people talk about are creativity, community, and empathy, sort of three major ones. And so... In this space, does you know it make sense to be a polymath? Yes, I think it does mm. for creativity, uh, for problem solving, and, and, and empathy. And so, net net, I do think it makes sense more now to go and be a polymath, i.e., competent across multiple fields, than it was to go deep into a single field, which may have been a good way a hundred years ago to be able to earn a wage. Yeah. Your thoughts, James, or do you? Well, yeah. so, so I think this is. Um... 
um, the crux of what it, um, why you would want to be a polymath, which is how does being a polymath, um, I guess, have an advantage or hold an advantage over someone who is a specialist? Because um, like in my personal um, travels, I guess, I have always come across people who appear to be um, extreme experts in their fields. Uh, whether it be you know analytics, whether it be supply chain, whether it be um, in, in my in my profession um, buying and planning for um, for retail, uh, so it always can be se- can be seen as overwhelming to try and see if you can actually provide additional value. But what I've come across is um, the notion of there is this new uh, approach to it, which is called being a T shape. Uh, I guess expert or um, an expert generalist, as Charlie Munger would uh, phrase it. So the T-shape is to say that you still specialize in one area, but you also have a very sound general knowledge in multiple other areas as well. Yeah, so I think we're saying that we agree it makes sense to be a polymath from a sort of job future-proof perspective, but also just from a fun perspective, I think it makes sense as well. Um, So... Most problems involve more than just one field. Even if it's really deep in one field, it might be 90% of one and 10% of the other. Mm. And creativity or problem solving, you know, which I think is creativity by a different name, um, is much more possible when you've got a lot more ingredients to draw on. And so if you know and you've read broadly, then you can draw from an idea in a different field to solve something. And so the lateral insights are often giving you better solutions, creative outcomes, than is knowing more about an individual space. And so problem solving and thinking is super fun. Yeah, have you found that to be the case, James, or, or what are your thoughts there? Well, yeah, so that's where um, this kind of flipped the entire thing on its head, which when, uh, you know, after school, I guess, you know, myself personally, I, I, I think I, I came across a burnout of learning <laughs> when I finished my uh, final year of uh, my degree I um, you know to a point said right that's it for me no more uh, no no more higher education and in a way I kind of saw that as no more learning um, but then over time in my new work or in my new job sorry um, I kept on finding myself wanting to learn more about my field because I was insanely ignorant of the work that I was being paid to do. Um, so I wanted to try and learn more as, as fast as I could. And so I did not think of it in the beginning as learning, I guess, um, whether it was uh, because I called it training or anything. But the more I did it, the more interesting I found it. And the more interesting I found it, the more fun I was having until I realized I was actually enjoying what I was doing because of the learning uh, process. You said something interesting. You said learning burnout. And yeah. so that was from, from university. And so one of the things that I sort of found is that I've called the sort of two phases of learning that I had in my life. One where learning was done to me and one where I was choosing to do the learning. <laughs> and the learning being done to me was unfortunately how I view my schooling and university um, you know, experiences. I didn't, would not have chosen to have learned what I was learning. I was doing it because someone, some wise person knew I. And I only started to find the learning that I actually wanted to do. You know, so you can take a horse to water, but you can't you know, force it to drink. I was being forced to drink. And then I started wanting to drink. Once I started real work 
And so when you said learning burnout, was it related to that or was it something different? Well, so for me, my final year of my degree was um, an honours, which included a thesis writing. And Mm. so I had to complete that as part of um, my course. And that was a, uh, you know, it was a big undertaking for for myself at least. Uh, And once that was finished, it was, uh, I think it was 50,000 words. Uh, I was at that point uh, at capacity in terms of late nights um, applying all of the research I had done into um, a thesis. So the burnout came from, you know, an override of trying to um, create a new field of knowledge, which is what they want you to do, um, in a very in a relatively short amount of time, which is one year. So that was where the burnout came from. Mm. Okay. Um, one of the things which I was sort of thinking about with this is there's this, this taxonomy called the Dreyfus taxonomy. And they talk about the different levels of basically how, how good you are. So first level is novice. Second level is competent. Third level is proficient. Fourth level is expert. And fifth level is master. And one of the ways that I sort of think about this polymath stuff is that you can get yourself to sound competent or proficient in an individual field. And then you do that across multiple fields. James was talking about this generalist specialist stuff. And then you become kind of a master of being a generalist, if that makes sense, um, instead of being a master of an individual field. And so the goal is not to continue going super deep. It's actually to get yourself to kind of competent, which means you can understand it, and then you, you work on joining things across. And this has been super fun and also I found is a really good way to get really good problem solving to happen. And I, I thought I'd give you a quick example. Um, I've been working on sort of like lower year level um, humanities and history as an example. And one of the things that we've been thinking about is how do we think about philosophy for history and how do we think about critical thought for history? And this isn't actually in the curriculum, but it's actually a better way to teach the curriculum, we believe, if done well. And this is not something that the people I spoke to who were, you know, for instance, history teachers thought about. It came up because I've been reading philosophy and I've been thinking about, you know, critical thought as an example. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I really like this model because... The Dreyfus I, model or which the, model? Sorry, yes, the Dreyfus model. And yeah. um, uh, it'll make a lot more sense to anyone listening when Duncan shares the table that um, this includes because what it makes clear um, is that the first level of the mental function is recollection. And I... Um, for me, the majority of my school education was just that, recollection. <laughs> you are taught a theory in math, you are taught a piece of history, you are taught a new language. I saw it as um, in, uh, upon myself to simply memorize that information. Uh, and, there's, um, and so what that meant was that that's how I pictured learning. I thought learning simply was memorizing new information. And so um, this, the Dreyfus um, taxonomy makes it clear that there are actually three more levels of your mental function when you are learning. There's recognition, decision, and there's awareness. So that's where this has really, really been helpful for me in my path towards loving to learn. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is 
okay, so, for, you know, all the automated stuff is going away. And this means that things like creativity and empathy and community are more important. They're harder to replace with automation. But does this ring true for all jobs? And there's a wonderful series on Netflix called Abstract. James, have you watched it? Uh, I know you've recommended it to me, Duncan, but I'm afraid I have not gotten around to it yet. So uh, okay. you're, you're, in, you're in the, uh, on your own on this. <laughs> so this is the, like an individual episode in, on, in, on each person. And one of them is on uh, someone who's like a graphic designer. Um, one of them is on somebody who's an architect. One of them is on the shoe designer from Nike. Um, I think it's Tinker Hatfield. And these people are deep experts in their individual fields. And I would put that as like they're mastering this. And so they are being creative in that field, though. But for them to be at the sort of peak of that field, they sort of know all, you know, as much as anybody knows about that. And so I think that whilst you, some people say that you want to combine things, you can still be super deep. And this is what James is calling T-shape. So you're super deep in one, but then you've got, like I say, maybe master level knowledge in one level, and then you've got sort of novice or competent in a bunch of other ones. Or what I think was being put forward by Michael Simmons in this article is you kind of want to get to be proficient, which is this middle level of taxonomy, in like multiple levels. So instead of being a master in one and so novice and competent others, you're kind of and so like deep and light in a few, you're kind of medium in, in multiple. So I don't think there is one answer. And it depends what you kind of want to do. And I think for those different fields, you know, you, you can definitely um, be looking, you know, at a, a sort of, you know, different ways to get great outcomes. Mm, mm. Um, so bring it back to what was a real, um, uh, I guess, epiphany for me with polymath is the idea of synthesis between different areas of knowledge. Uh, for a long time, I thought if you wanted to you know, learn more about science, you can learn more about science. If you want to learn more about history or humanities or um, mathematics, then those areas are kind of just stuck in their own, uh, I guess, respective fields. Mm. But the advantage here is that, um, you know, I think, Duncan, you've phrased this before, like English can teach you about math. Mm. Math can teach you about English. And so you're not just dedicating all this time to one particular area and then dropping it and then moving into another is kind of this compounding effect where the more you know about a variety of different fields, the more you can apply that knowledge to their respective um, other areas. So that to me is um, something I found very compelling. 100%. So in, in the article it says, you compound the value of everything that you've learned in the past. Mm. And so one of the things that I've come to believe is that what you can learn is a function of what you know. So the more you know, the more you can learn. I think we've talked about this in the past a little bit. Um, but if, if James loves sport and I don't love sport, and he reads an article on that sport, and, and I read the same article, he'll might get five facts and I'll get three because he can see things that are worthwhile facts. And then each fact he can hang on to other facts. So each fact means more. So per unit of learning or of you know, reading, he's gotten more facts and they mean more. And this is this whole compounding effect. And what I think you said also is that if you're reading in multiple fields, how you can hang that knowledge onto it doesn't just have to be in sport. It can then have a parallel into how you think about, you know, your relationships with your family or how you think about problem solving in this. And so the knowledge has more value because of the intercollection. So each piece of knowledge can relate to other pieces of knowledge. It's three-dimensional. This is this polymath stuff. So the more yeah. fields you know, you learn something, but you can hang it onto other things that you know, and so it has more value. So this whole idea of you know compounding is huge. 
Yeah, um, and that's kind of the um, the power of um, going after areas that you know at the very least stoke your interest because it doesn't feel like learning in, in the traditional sense that you have to apply yourselves to absorb this knowledge. It actually can be quite seamless. Um, and for me, the epiphany was, uh, so basically as soon as I became a parent, um, I wanted to research as much as I could on um, the, uh, I guess, the uh, physiology of uh, babies, on the history of child-rearing, all of these different things. And of course, it was my number one interest. It was the thing I was most uh, curious about, I was most invested in. And um, I would actually talk to people about this in a, in a very, very, uh, I guess, I, I tried to be uh, congenial about it. <laughs> but if anyone asked, I would be more than happy to, um, to, to share. But someone would say, wow, you seem very knowledgeable in this area. And um, I said this without giving it any further thought, but um, my response was, uh, anybody can sound like an expert in an area that they're interested in. Uh, and, and that was what I, I, I guess, suddenly realized is that you, you can be, uh, I guess, learning in the thing that you're interested in the most without having to worry about what it is that you're, um, I guess, acquiring knowledge. Mm. Um, so having sort of learned about, you know, the, the value of multiple disciplines slowly um, and how they interrelate to each other and how, you know, if you want to get... I don't know, I say better at your job at work. You don't only necessarily have to just read about that that field. You can read about something completely different, like raising a child, and it can teach you about your your current job. Um, I thought it might be interesting to talk about what our current information diets are. Um, and I'll we'll kick this off here. So there's multiple vectors. <laughs> One is short term, medium term, long term. So I try to balance between the three. You don't want to only do short-term like daily news. You don't want to only do so short-term is daily news. Medium-term is things like magazine articles, podcasts. Long-term is books. You kind of want to balance between the three. Mm-hmm. And if you're reading a book about, I don't know, political history, and then you're paying attention to some of the current politics, the two teach you about each other. So I try to balance between those three. And then I also try to balance across fields. So I don't only want to be doing... So I, I work in, in education setup, so I read a bunch of stuff on education. But I don't only want to read on education. I also have been reading a bunch of philosophy, and that's been helping me think about education. I also read politics, and that's been helping me think about education. So as an example, I think that people talk about financial literacy, and people don't necessarily have that, so they'll do a whole lot of maths, but they won't have any idea about how a home loan works or how to do a tax return. And I think that you could say that some people don't have political literacy, and so that they then, for instance, may vote for something that they don't necessarily know what they're voting for. And they think they're getting a good outcome for themselves, but they're not actually. And so I think we want to have people get to political literacy. And so that's something that, you know, how do you do that? And how do you hopefully have people help, you know, help them make the best decisions for themselves and give them the information? So basically, I try to do short, medium and long term. And I try to read across as many fields as possible. Um, They are sort of no specific order. I do some finance. I do some politics. um, I do some tech. I do some philosophy, I do some economics, um, I do some, you know, education, I do some sort of empathy sort of stuff. So there's things like, I don't know, listening to people's therapy sessions, which you can get on podcasts. Um, 
So there's a couple that I quite like, you know, Esther Perel, which is couples therapy, and there's one called Reboot, which is sort of therapy for people who are, who are doing businesses. Um, then there's psychology podcasts, so things like All in the Mind. It sort of goes on and on. And there's, you know, a sort of never-ending list. And I think it's been hugely interesting. And I've found that, yeah, I would used to read much more in, say, I don't know, finance when I worked in the finance industry. But now I learn more as much about finance whilst reading a tenth as much because of all of the interrelated parts because finance is ultimately helping fund businesses. And if I can understand those businesses, then I can understand finance better. Well, that's certainly quite a heaping of uh, <laughs> um, knowledge that you're uh, going into there, Duncan. So uh, the vector uh, that you gave was very interesting, short, medium, long term. Um, mm. And I, I guess um, I never actually viewed it in that particular way. For me, how I look at the way I, um, uh, the way I learn is the first step is what am I trying to filter out? Uh, basic rationale here is that Working full-time, being a young parent, uh, I have very little time. I have very little opportunity to, uh, you know, whether it's like these leaders in the article that we're talking about, um, you know, they have their five-hour-a-week uh, standard or whether it's, um, they read one book a week. Uh, those kind of things are very, uh, I guess, uh, abstract. For me, I have the time I have on the way to work in the morning and way home night and maybe some more time uh, in the evening or when I'm walking during lunch. So for me, I will always have a book that I'm reading. So for example, the book I'm reading right now is Ray Dalio's Principles. I will also always have a list of podcast episodes that I like to listen to that I can go through in just a bit. Um, and then I will read as many articles as I can on areas that are either directly or indirectly related to my profession and my industry. Uh, but one thing I just wanted to touch on here um, when time is limited is how you filter out noise. Uh, so noise for me at the moment uh, is social media and what I will call uh, popular news cycles. So social media is you know, typical things like Facebook, Instagram, etc., etc. A little bit is good. Uh, I think, you know, you can utilize these things as long as they are in a very healthy manner. But sometimes, even I can't trust myself with that. I would spend way too much time on Instagram when I could be reading my book. Um, but the other part is, uh, like my, my number one junk intake right now is reading about the news and things that don't directly help me at all, like what the hell Trump was up to today, blah, 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 blah. So in terms of what my diet is, I try to make sure I spend time every day reading my book. I try to listen to at least one podcast every day as well. Um, and the articles that I'm reading will be either directly related to fashion, retail, uh, the future of online retail, or things more so to my profession, which is product management, things like analytics, things like data um, platforms, uh, things like operations. One of the things which I've found is a great hack, and you're listening to a podcast, so you've probably figured this out, is audio information. <laughs> uh, first of all, if you look at the education research, there's no difference between the amount that someone understands, whether it's been written or it's been spoken or, or other things. People talk about modalities of learning, which was like kinesthetic learning. That's been thoroughly debunked. So if anyone brings it up, um, there is no research which backs up this being fair. Um, so the second one also is this service called Narrow, which I love. Um, and this is basically where you can turn any 
written article into a audio format. So I just push a button in my Chrome browser and then that will show up in my podcast feed and I can listen to it. So there might be a long article, but I don't have half an hour to read it. So I just hit that button and then it goes into my podcast and I can listen to it. Um, and then the other one which I was going to ask James is, how fast do you think the average person speaks in words a minute? Oh, well, so that's just one word a second, so 60 words a minute. No, it's two words a second, so it's 120. How fast do you think the average person reads in words a minute? I would say something similar. It's actually a bit faster. It's about 200 words a minute and 65% comprehension. How fast do you think a top one percentile reader reads in words a minute? So just to be clear, 55% comprehension no, means... 65, only... 65. So they only comprehend 65% of what's said. Correct. So they do, they've got these tests online. You can go and do them if you want. Um, and then it's kind of like they sort of you read something and then they quiz you on questions on it. Um, so they've, they've understood 65% of what's in there. So a top one percentile reader, how many words a minute and what comprehension? Hmm. 300 words a minute at 70% comprehension. A thousand words a minute at 80% comprehension. So this is five times faster than the 200 someone's normally reading and then 120 people speaking in words a minute. It's like seven times that speed. So basically your brain is fundamentally more capable than the mouth is at speaking. And a similar parallel is that if you've never run before, you're not going to run very fast. But if you practice running every day, you're going to run a lot faster. Someone might be able to run seven times faster than someone who's never run before, but they're not necessarily expending more energy. It's the same amount of kilojoules going out. And so you can train your brain in effect to be able to listen faster, to speed up. It's only acclimated to you know, the, the speed of people's mouths going. And so... One of the other hacks is not just listening to an audio format, so I don't have to make time, I can do this on my commute to work, I can do this when I'm at the gym, is that you can listen to it faster. And sort of James knows this, I listen to most things at sort of four to five X speed. <laughs> um, so by sort of 8 a.m. each day, I would have listened to about one, uh, so eight hours of one times human speed speaking. And this is a combination of podcasts, uh, of you know, audio books and of articles that I've sort of found. Um, and then it just sort of rumbles around in my brain and sort of sits around there. <laughs> mm. And so it's just so much fun. Like I, I love going to the gym now. I used to hate it because I can listen to information. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's super fun. Um, but there's more than just doing this on um, an increasing amount of frequency. There are actual skills that you can, uh, that you should acquire as part of this. Like, so if I'm not mistaken, when people generally read, they actually verbalize each word in their head. Um, and this is what, and the one percenters aren't doing that. They're doing something else entirely, which is a different skill set that you have to learn. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what it is, but I can't actually uh, get the information. But uh, I guess the point I'm making here is that it's not like running where you can just run every day and you'll get faster. It's, yes, you've got to exercise your brain every day, but there are actually ways that you change or rewire the way that you read or absorb information that means that you can do it, uh, you know, at a magnitude of two, three, five times faster as well. I remember reading that, saying that they don't read the word aloud in their head, but when I'm listening to a podcast at five times speed, that person's speaking just at a lot faster. <laughs> so I, I do not know. I, when I am listening faster, I'm, not, I'm still listening to the words. 
Um, so I don't understand what they're sort of saying for that. For me, it just literally is faster and you can train your brain to do, mm. to do that better. Um, so, yeah, the other thing is like with news, uh, I found some podcasts which are really good on the news front and I can listen to individual articles. And so I've basically figured out how to get this news diet to, to work. Um, one of the things I thought of thought about when, when learning, so you're basically accumulating all these ingredients, but then you want to make sure you do them as well as possible. And that's actually what this whole podcast is with James is talking about the things that we've learned or so an article that we've read and talking about it deepens your understanding monstrously. And so one of the things I started to do now is at the end of every podcast, it automatically stops, is to autoplay. And I have to think about it for like some period of time. Sometimes it's only like 15 seconds. Sometimes I'll be on some like five minute, you know, oh my God, this is, this is you know, going. And so one of the things I did is force myself to stop after every podcast and think about what they just said and think, you know, sort of try to, you know, examine it a little bit more. Do you do anything like this, James? Well, yeah. So um, a lot of people ask like, so what is it that you're getting out of the uh, podcast that you and Duncan are, are recording? And my response is that this is a different form of learning, unlike anything else um, that I've ever done. Because not only are, you know, we are looking into certain areas of, that we find interesting and then researching them so that we can think of what it is that we want to, I guess, contribute. But reflecting on each podcast is an insane uh, learning curve for myself because I am learning so much about how to not only construct and, I guess, improve the way that I um, put points across, but, um, you know, for example, Duncan is an incredibly valuable resource of feedback that can give me other areas that I would not have otherwise picked up on. Uh, and so I feel like this is also, you know, tipping over into uh, my work life and my uh, personal life in how I think about uh, problems or um a subject that I want to discuss. So it's a very, very steep learning curve that has not been available to me since uh, before we started these podcasts. Uh, and it's, it's kind of scary thinking about how much I've learned in the last seven weeks now, I think it is, <laughs> um, and how much we, uh, more we could have been doing if we had started sooner. But I guess I'm grateful that we've started now um, because, yeah, there's absolutely no... Uh, I guess tipping point in the foreseeable future where this will um, you know, have any diminishing returns or anything of that uh, magnitude. Yeah, um, that's one of the things I should say. Like, I used to think that knowledge um, was linear, but I've come to believe it's like all one-dimensional, that it's it's three-dimensional. And I used to say that the more you, I say this still, but you know, what you can learn is a function of what you know. And I'd say you've read a book, and you might have understood fifty percent of what was in the book, but if you were you know, more of an expert in that, you would read it in, and someone would understand 75%. Or if you read it the second time, you understand more. But I kind of thought there was some upper limit. You, you kind of understood 100% of it. Uh, and this, I think, was from school. You know, you, you do a test and you got like 100%. You understood 100% of things. You got 50%, you understood 50%. But what I've come to believe is that knowledge is three-dimensional. So there's never an upper limit. And you read it again. And if you've read a whole lot of other stuff in the intervening time, then all of those pieces of information there can be hung off onto other pieces mm. of information. Mm. So whilst if you, the more you know when you read something, you'll get more. So I think you get more facts and they'll mean more. But there's no limit. There's no like you now understand 100% of this. This is an idea that I think you know, universities and tests and schools sort of 
have. You can get 100% or you know this, but it isn't. And I think one of the key parts that sort of come out of this for me is we re-listen to our podcasts. And I can re-listen to a podcast that James and I spoke about, say, eight hours later. And I will learn a hell of a lot of stuff from what we talked about, even what I talked about, eight hours later. And part of the reason for that is, is because the information is passing through my brain and I can hang it off onto all these other things. I'm not relearning something I forgot in eight hours. I'm learning something new that I never learned before. It's amazing. It's like, it's just, it's like change. I used to think I listen to a podcast and somebody else has said something and I learned something because I've never heard it before. Mm. But no, I'm listening to myself eight hours later and I'm learning new things that I've never learned before. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, if, if I understand correctly, one of the, I guess, tenets of um, 3D learning is learning through practice, not just absorbing theory and information, but actually applying that. And, um, you know, to take an example, this podcast is um, exactly that. We are practicing our knowledge by talking about it. Um, but it reminds me of something else that I also uh, find to be, um, you know, very interesting or compelling to me is that uh, the growing uh, thought piece around, so the traditional body of thought is to be an expert in any field, it takes 10,000 hours. And um, that's what people would generally, I guess, see as the requirement in order for you to be uh, an expert in something. But there's a growing uh, counterintuitive thought, which is to be, um, it doesn't take 10,000 hours, it takes 10,000 experiments. And I thought this was a really, really good, uh, I guess, play on that because an experiment is something that you do. It's not simply an hour of reading on it. And by doing something, by trialing, by uh, making mistakes, you are actually doing a, uh, I guess, a, a, you're undergoing a process of learning that is far more engaging, far more richer than simply reading about it in a text. Uh, so I'm a really big fan of the 10,000 experiments, uh, I guess, idea. I really like that. Um, so this whole 10,000 hours thing was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers. And if you haven't read it, read it. It's awesome. But I think people used to think that learning was this thing where someone had laid out a course or curriculum. And so an example that might have is like, you're a violinist or something, right? And you practice the violinist and you go up the grades that someone has made and then you play harder and harder music and you sort of get better. And then at the end of it, you're a master. Or, you know, you, you're like, I don't know, a, 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 you know, whatever, a blacksmith and you become really good at making steel. But learning, I think, isn't necessarily learning something that someone has invented before. It's actually building. So you're learning, but you're learning by creating new things. So you're making stuff up in effect. And so instead of 10,000 hours of studying a laid out course on something, it's 10,000 hours of experiments where you're actually learning. Because an experiment, typically I would say, is like, you know, Karl Popper, um, scientific, um, whatever it's called, but like, you know, you build a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis. You need to falsify that hypothesis or you need to prove it as, you know, true. And if you're doing that at the end of that hypothesis testing, you've learned something. And so you're not learning what is laid out before you in a curriculum. You're building the curriculum. And this is, I kind of think, what needs to happen more of in the world. And it's also super, super fun. Mm, yeah, so it, it's super fun and it's super helpful because what it does is it changes your mindset. Um, you know, so many people face paralysis because they won't start something because they feel like they don't know how to do it. Um, or I guess one of the, the textbook 
excuse me for not starting businesses, I don't know where to start. Um, or I'm not an expert. Why, why, why would I be able to do this better than anyone? Um, but if you flip it on its head and you think about it in ways of, well, if I can just learn by running experiments, then it's implied that part of those experiments mean failure or uh, making mistakes. Mm. And that then leads you towards making mistakes. I, I, I love the, the quote. Um, uh, I think it was Nikola Tesla who, when he was trying to invite the light bulb or the AC current, it was, I didn't fail a thousand times when I tried to make Edison. the light bulb. Edison. 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 Thank you. Um, I simply learned 1,000 ways not to make a light bulb. And um, that's a very, very powerful mindset because that means that failure isn't a bad thing. It is actually a necessary thing um, on your path to um, actually learning. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of, I think we talked about this in the past, growth mindset a little. I think having a growth mindset is where you believe, or this, you know, the definition, as I understand it, that your intelligence is not fixed, that you can improve. So if you didn't do well in math test, you can learn and you can study and you can improve. This is what sort of being a polymath is. You know, you're learning different fields and you're improving. Um, and so I think one definition of growth mindset is where failure is actually a success. You can, you can turn it into a success because you learned why you failed and therefore you're better at it. And so you can take failure, I don't know, you know, done badly, you can do failure well. And I think growth mindset in some respects is doing failure well. Mm. Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, who, so Ray Dalio also said that when he goes, we tolerate mistakes, but we don't tolerate not learning from those mistakes. Uh, and so for me, I think that's actually where the greatest, well, in my experience, the greatest value has been in <laughs> um, trying things out and understanding why they don't work. Uh, because you can then apply that uh, to the next thing. And you already have this understanding of, you know, what direction you should be heading in. And one of the things that I really, really, really uh, enjoyed uh, utilizing are mental models. Uh, because these help me, uh, that the, they're like little nuggets of wisdom <laughs> that I try to um, uh, have available to me. I, 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 don't, I can't always uh, commit them to memory or just, you know, rote learning. <laughs> but um, they really do help explain, you know, parts of the world that are um, otherwise new or un unclear to me. One more quote on this learning thing. This is from Karl Popper. Um, the new basic principle is that in order to learn to avoid making mistakes we must learn from our mistakes to cover up mistakes is therefore the greatest intellectual sin and so another Ray Dalio quote which is you know pain plus reflection equals progress it's yeah. kind of you should lean into make your mistakes and learn from them there's kind of the easiest wins rather than trying to like explain them away um you, you know, this whole learning, which is so much fun. So they say one of the top three things that brings happiness is personal growth. And one of the key ways for that is to like learn from your mistakes is super awesome. Um, and so I found that the more you do this, the more vulnerable you are to yourself, the faster your learning growth rate. And the faster your learning growth rate, the more you can actually help others and help, or help the world. And so it's this kind of weird thing where in school you don't want to get a bad mark. And getting 50 mm. is actually not good, right? But in real life, getting 50 
is actually an, uh, an opportunity to understand why you, you got this half wrong and how can I not make that mistake in the future? Um, if you're lear- if you're getting 100% right, you're not learning anything. Does that make sense? Like learning is a process yeah. of figuring out where you were wrong. Yeah. So um, that was something that uh, uh, Gonski in his school reform study uh, pointed out in the Australian uh, curriculum. So um, I'll only touch on this one point, but he was looking at one of the things that we're not doing well is, uh, I guess, tracking the student's progress throughout the year. Instead of just evaluating their score compared to other children, it's more valuable for an individual's learning to be able to track their own progress. And for me, that's how I saw learning to be a lot more engaging and a lot more fun when I could track my own progress and not have to worry about how much I knew about something compared to someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, they say that, you know, Warren Buffett, um, there's two people, sort of people, internal scorecard people and external scorecard people. Internal scorecard people measure themselves against themselves and external scorecard people measure themselves against others. And what people say with some research is that there's actually far more or a better path to a good life is having an internal scorecard because there's always someone who's going to earn more money or to you know, have a prettier wife or whatever else it is. Um, and so you having you know your own yardsticks, but then having realistic ones. So there's sort of say th- three levels of expectation, low expectation, which is bad, high expectation, which is good, and then unrealistic expectations, which are bad. Um, so high expectations get you to strive for more other things. So yeah, um, I think what James is saying is that school, you know, basically I say you get graded. Some people get told they're smart, some people get told they're not smart. But we want to move from grading to growth. So how much did you learn? And so you can see I've learned this much and the existing schooling system is not really set up around that. And I think a lot of people think that it should move in that way. Mm. And I think um, trying to reflect personally on my own journey, that can be, a, you know, a real reason why it took a not a long time, but it took a good while after I finished my formal education um, to come around and realize that learning is actually a really fun and engaging endeavor because throughout my entire schooling life, it was an external scorecard um, system where I was graded based on a standard um, level of understanding. It wasn't, um, for, it, it wasn't designed for me to track my own progress against that. It was simply, how well do you understand this area? Um, but once I went on my own learning uh, journey, it suddenly became an internal uh, scorecard where I could actually see, wow, this is something that I knew nothing about several weeks ago. Uh, and now when I'm reading more about it, I'm able to apply um, my newly acquired knowledge to it. And it's, you know, and it's much more fascinating in that way. So um, I'm not going to go and say that the system or the schooling system uh, works against you in that way. But it's interesting to observe how the two different, um, I guess, internal and external uh, motivators can change your relationship with learning or impact, I should say. Hmm. Definitely. Um, you want extrinsic or intrinsically motivated people, they say. And so maybe for intrinsic motivation, if you were going to recommend one or two books for people to sort of hopefully kickstart their love of learning, because I think mm. you and I have discover the love of learning and i feel incredibly lucky to have because i feel like it happened by accident <laughs> and, you know it didn't, it didn't happen in unfortunately my schooling or or you know university times and I, I unfortunately see a lot of my friends where i believe that they have not discovered this 
And I honestly think that my life is immeasurably richer and more enjoyable because of this. What books would you recommend? If you want a minute to think about it, James, I can talk about a couple from, from me, or if you've got some to hand, go. Um, all right, well, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna get the first one. Mm. Uh, and it's Bill Bison, A Short History of Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really well written. Uh, in school, history, um, or anything, I guess, that was focusing on charts, geology, science, stuff, I found it to be incredibly dry, incredibly um, unengaging, or, or I was not interested in it. But this, the way this was written um, made it a very, very compelling and interesting read for me. And I was enjoying it. So Duncan's... And what did uh, you get from it? What did you get from it? You said like, like it's compelling read, but what was compelling? All right, so, I, so what I got was a basic blueprint of the world um, and everything in it from a humanity standpoint um, and how we got to where we are today. Uh, from a uh, geological perspective, how every, oh, and then like molecular and scientific level, but also from a social level, from a, um, a historical level, from all of the different areas that led us to where we are today. Cool. I mean, that's that's awesome. I've read it as well. Um, while it says it's a short history of nearly everything, it's actually quite a long book. <laughs> so that was quite entertaining. Um, uh, there's two that I recommend when people ask me. Uh, one is The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil. Um, this is one of the oh. two, I would say, the two key terms on artificial intelligence, the other one being superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. Um, uh, it is super it to... long and it is super hardcore, but it is super delicious. Oh, so this is... one literally changed my view on life more than anything else that I have read. Mm. And one of the key reasons for this is it convinced me that we will reverse engineer all of humanity, including humans' brains, and that through this process, we will be able to live forever. So we're just technology, this you know body, and that it has a number of defects. You know, it gets sick, you know, it needs to sleep, etc. But that we can actually get better at all these things. And so when you start to believe, well, hang on, I might not never die. And they say, you know, that we're either, James and I are 34, or the first generation to live forever, the last generation to die, it changes your view on everything. There's all these things that you, you thought you would do because you've got a limited time here. Mm. And starting to believe that I may not die changed how I looked at life. And Duncan and I have different thoughts me, on this. Convinced me deeply um, you know, on this. And so it's a very heavy book. It's not a light read. It's, but the reason that it is heavy, uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like hectic you know, research pieces. And they basically go through it to the level of depth where you're like, okay, this is possible. Um, so that's the first one. James, do you have thoughts on that? Or I've got another book as well. Or do you have another book to talk about? Um, I do. So um, first of all, Duncan and I have different thoughts on uh, living forever. I think we can save that for another episode. It's a very, very, I think we could have a very interesting conversation on that. Uh, the other book I would recommend, and I don't know if it's, well, no, it is learning because you definitely learn about happiness. <laughs> and it's The Art of Happiness from the Dalai Lama. A on. much... A, a much a much more lighter read than uh, <laughs> the short history of nearly everything and the singularity in there, um, but you will learn a lot about what it is that makes you happy. You will learn a lot about uh, yourself and your own, um, you know, your strive for happiness and why we all strive for happiness. Um, but it's a very very I found it a very enlightening book as well. So, what is your key outtake from it? So the key I take from this is that um, everybody has a, I guess, a resting level of happiness. 
And it's only when you understand truly what it is that feeds your authentic self, what feeds your own purpose, your divine purpose, as he would put it, um, is what will make you happy. And if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like if you don't know where you're going, um, then no wind is favorable. <laughs> um, people attach themselves to things that they think will make them happy, but end up not doing so because they don't truly understand. Um, okay. And what it is for you? What is one of those things for you? One of those things for me is, um, I guess, just raising my children. Uh, there's nothing that makes me happier than that. All right. Um, I, I would have said, so this is, I think it's true, like, you know, um, Andrew Carnegie's biography by David Norsaw. Um, but uh, he, so he was one of the robber barons. Um, but I think I would change it for a lot of people now and make it Shoe Dog, which is on the Nike co-founder, Buck Knight mm. or Phil Knight. Um, it is epic. Um, and it, so there's, it's one of those books which is incredibly entertaining, but also incredibly nutritious in that there's a lot of interesting, good life lessons in there. Um, and it's a kind of crossover book. If you've only ever sort of read books that, I don't know, might be sort of on the entertainment spectrum, this is entertainment and nutrition. Um, so, yeah, definitely go and have a look um, at that one. All right, I think we're at the end of this. <laughs> James, summary time. Summary time. Okay, so um, we started off talking about what it means to be a polymath and a voracious learner. So the two are very much, uh, for me, intertwined. Um, in terms of being a polymath, there are numerous fields that I am constantly uh, curious about learning more. In. And I'm not just trying to, uh, I guess, acquire knowledge for the sake of it um, or just voraciously learn um, aimlessly. Uh, these are all areas that I see are applicable to my life. So I, I love to learn more about parenting. I love to learn more about um, the industry that I work in, uh, which is fashion and online retail. Um, but I also love to learn as much as I can about um, you know, certain kinds of uh, self-development areas, um, the history of human evolution, uh, things like molecular, astro, and quantum physics, all of these different areas. Um, and I believe that by having a very well-grounded understanding, not a expert level, but well-grounded understanding all of these areas feeds each other in my, in, uh, my ability to um, have, I guess, insights and areas of understanding that would not otherwise have been available. Cool. Um, we sort of said this earlier. Um, I think that with automation coming, um, repetitive stuff's going away. And so problem solving, you know, uh, creativity, um, empathy, and other things are going to be more important. To be better at problem solving, the broader your knowledge base, I think the better. So being a polymath is better. So from a logical future job-proof perspective, it makes sense. But also, in my experience, it's lots of fun. <laughs> so it's not just right from making sure you, you, you can earn some money. Uh, it's also right from a fun perspective. Um, so yeah, read uh, a lot, or five hours, they say here, and read broadly. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's it. Do we want to tell our listeners about what we're going to be talking about next week? Okay, we're going to be talking about a podcast um, which is on placebo and nocebo. Um, so placebo is, yeah, you, you may want to know what it is, um, but it's going to be fun. I will see you all next week. All right. Good talking to you, Duncan. <laughs>